0: Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains but above all it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem Pop-Up Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports and a dissection of real murder scenes find out more at murdercourse.com that's murdercourse.com This is the Murder and Mayhem podcast and it's Valerie Kuhi. Thanks for joining into this installment where we delve into the minds and get an insight into the authors who create all of these amazing crime and thriller books. Now, if you're interested in the crime and thriller genre and also writing in the crime and thriller genre, then make sure you get the accompanying ebook to this podcast series where we curate all of the key takeaways and insights from the authors that we feature in this pop-up series. And you can find that ebook, which is called A Month of Murder and Mayhem, at MurderCourse.com. Today we're talking to a writer called Zane Lovett. Now, Zane is a documentary filmmaker turned crime writer, and his debut novel, The Midnight Promise, won the prestigious Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. And this led Zane to being named one of the best young novelists in 2013, by the Sydney Morning Herald. Since then, he's released Black Teeth in 2016. But we interviewed him shortly after he released The Midnight Promised. And this interview originally appeared in our other podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer, which is a podcast that features authors and people in the publishing industry from all over the world and all all walks of life and all different genres. But what we've done here in this podcast series, Murder and Mayhem, is curate the world's best crime and thriller authors so you have them all in one spot. This interview is being conducted by Danielle Williams, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Uh, thank you for joining us, Zane.
2: Oh, you're very welcome.
1: Um, first of all, can you just tell us a bit about your book, The Midnight Promise?
2: Sure. Um, well, it's, it's called The Midnight Promise. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection of ten stories narrated by the central character, of John Dawn. Um, he's a private investigator working in Melbourne, in contemporary Melbourne. Um, and while each of the stories is, um, is meant, it's written, it, it's meant, they're meant to be discrete, self-contained Stories And they are, I don't mind calling them sort of hard, hard-boiled hard crime stories as much as one hates to just reach for labels. I think it's fair to, fair, to, fair to call them um But what's going on, as much as they are sort of self-contained stories, what's, what's going on in the background of each story is John's personal journey where he's having to come to terms not only with all the miserable stuff he gets exposed to in his day-to-day job, but also with his own sort of self-destructive methods of dealing with all that miserable stuff. You know, he uses his... He uses his humour as a crutch and he uses his drinking as a crutch, but the thing about a crutch, of course, is that it's by definition by definition not a not a permanent solution um, and that dictates the direction he's going in, and it's what comes to a head for him at the end of the book
1: yep so it's it's quite a unique way to tell the story of one character essentially through ten short stories. What came first for you, John, or those stories?
2: Uh, it definitely would have been John. Um, I sort of, I think I decided like about ten years ago that I was going to write a crime book, and I was immediately confronted by the by the issue that I did not know how to write a crime book. So I had to um, play with it, and like what I, what I, the method I sort of resolved to do was to uh, alternate my time between developing a full length story, and that's really what I thought I was starting out by doing, um, like a, like a regular novel. Um, and also spending time writing short stories, what were going to be very, very short stories, like you know, a couple of pages each, just as exercises to sort of get my head around the character and get my head around the voice. Um, and that's sort of what I started out doing. Um, and what basically started to happen was something which was very new to me, which is that I really started to like what I was doing. I was I really started to like what I was writing, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there are writers listening to this who um, uh, who know what it's like to be uh, more or less overwhelmed by self loathing in response to the quality of work you produce. Um, it's you know my 20s are certainly no exception um, in all of the artistic pursuits that I was involved in. Uh, I mean there's, there was stuff that had merit, but nothing that I thought was actually you know good. Like ask people to pay to see it good. Um, so when I began to enjoy reading back on what I'd written and what I found myself when I found myself excited to get back to the stories, when I was rushing back to the desk to, to, to write more, I was, um, I was certainly surprised. Um, and as those stories sort of grew longer, as I sort of unpacked them, um, the full length novel, which I thought I'd been writing, wasn't really exciting me. It wasn't the reason why I was rushing back to the desk. So, um, I worked on that less and less until eventually I realized that these shorter stories were going to be what the book was. Um, but it was only then, I mean, in answer to your question, it was only then when I sort of stepped back, and I really did have like seven or eight of these stories done when I realised that that was going to be a, the book. Um, it was only then that I was able to step back and see what John's, what was happening to him um, and, and, and the direction he was moving in. Um, so it certainly began with the character, you know, I was very interested in writing a hard-boiled, is that word again, um, private investigator-style story. Um the the, sto- the, the stories themselves really just began as exercises.
1: Right. So I guess it probably happened quite organically then. Uh, once you had decided on this series of short story, how did you plan the book so that there was that common link throughout so that you could tie it all together as one book?
2: Um, well, like you say, I mean, it really was... A very organic thing um there was no planning <laughs> there was no planning happening um which was good because the stories like the, the stories themselves are meticulously planned I don't really put them to paper until I know a huge amount of what's going to happen um and I know great you know entire dialogue interactions and and certainly how you know how the story is going to resolve so that part was that part is, is very carefully planned um I know there are a lot of writers out there who don't really appreciate the idea of planning or, or, or sketching an outline or whatever term you want to use, but it's certainly what I was doing for the short stories. Um, and ironically enough, they, there was nothing like that going on for the for the, for the bigger picture, um, which makes that bigger picture to me sort of quite exciting. It's the thing that it's the thing that I find most exciting about the book because everything else has been so carefully thought through. The sort of what you might call the foreground stories have been so carefully thought through, but what's happening in the background was just sort of um, John's own
1: john's own thing right yep so once you, you you kind of had john in your head the whole time but where did the inspiration for these stories come from because i know that the first story particularly I i loved that it was, oh, it was so clever and i just i wonder where they where they came from Are these from you know real life Happening. Well, none of the
2: stories are from real life, but certainly, I mean, I was doing a law degree when I was writing the book mostly, and, and there was a lot of real life stuff that sort of sneaks in. I mean, that's the first story that you referred to. You may remember that there's a sort of a little anecdote that John tells about Jim Yetta, who's a bloke who falls asleep in a park. That's a real story. Like, that's that's actually a real case that really took place um, uh in terms of what happened to that poor guy when the, when the police came along and, and picked him up. Um, there's some real-ish kind of stuff that happens in the background like that um throughout the book but the stories themselves are like that's just that's just my imagination to a large extent and it's me trying to reach for I suppose similar kind of stuff to what Sherlock Holmes traditional stories were you know the short stories or um continental ops stories by Dashiell Hammett um perfectly self-contained little private detective stories basically that's what I was reaching for
1: yeah. So um, before you were writing, you were a documentary filmmaker. Mm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what inspired you to move from that to writing?
2: <laughs> um, the writing always been the thing that I wanted to do. Like I can say that without doubt, um, as far back as I can remember. But for that 10 years, I thought that the means by which I would deliver the stories that I created to an audience would be via cinema. And as much as I did do a lot of work in non-fiction film. I was also really interested in the fictional stuff as well. Um, but what eventually had to happen about five years ago is I had to accept that I don't really, I don't really have the right personality um, to, to be a filmmaker, um, to, to really to be someone who leads a film crew. You know, I, 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 I kind of realised that there are basically, there are people who are writers and there are people who are leaders and those groups very rarely overlap because they're fundamentally different kinds of people. You know, writers are far more voyeuristic. They prefer to sort of step back from the action and watch it unfold and then just kind of judge it. Um, Often they only want to be sort of as much involved in any given scenario or system as will provide them with some kind of insight into that scenario or system, but they don't really want any responsibility. Leaders, on the other hand, have to focus not on what's happening around them, um, in order to analyze it the way a writer would, they they sort of focus on themselves. They they want responsibility as a way of focusing attention on themselves. Um, leaders are people who really do consider themselves to be at the at the center of their universe. And as much as that's kind of that sounds pretty narcissistic, um, it's absolutely necessary if they want to be confident enough to inspire people to follow them. You know, and that's what a film director absolutely has to be. Um, that's how you get a film crew to work for you, so, um so, you know, 24-hour stints and for 10 years at a time, and it's how, it's how actors are made to feel safe enough to open up their veins, which is basically what they have to do. Um, there are very few directors, I think it's fair to say, um, and even this includes sort of the the, the, the great Or two, There are very few directors who were also writers, you know, who sort of started out with just a blank page and wrote their own screenplays. Many of them were part of a writing team, or um, you know adapted their material from a play or from a book, but they hardly ever really started from scratch and wrote and directed their own stuff. Um, there are exceptions to that, but the reason for that is because they're not just different skill sets; they're just different person. They really do require totally different personalities, in my in my opinion. Um, and when I sort of came to the, to terms with the fact that my personality was that of the writer, um, I was suddenly free to focus on that. And now with my first book coming out, I'm very happy that that's what I did.
1: Yes, yeah, so was there anything in in filmmaking that has helped your writing? Anything about that creative process that's similar or helpful in any way?
2: Uh, absolutely. Mo- mostly, I'd say it's kind of the 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 innovation in story structure that films can can demonstrate. you know you would you would have noticed that a lot of the stories in my book are not told. Chronologically and that the order things happen causally and not the order in which they are presented to the reader. And that's something which I find endlessly entertaining as a reader and I, or as a, as someone who, as an audience member. And I really do consider playing with time to be an end unto itself. I don't think you need a formal reason to do it. I wish more books did that. I love reading stories and watching movies that sort of make me work. And one of the best ways to do that is by messing with with the chronological structure. And that's something that movies and TV, I think, are willing to do more than, more than prose fiction. I mean, certainly, again, there are exceptions, but, you know, people talk about how, um, there are less and less readers of books these days. And people are often claiming that this is owing to some kind of, um, not ignorance or maybe not only ignorance, but, but kind of a general dumbing down of the audience of a laziness of audiences where they prefer to flock in front of a movie screen or, TV screen or a computer screen um, to have a story told to them and my feeling is exactly the opposite you know audiences are accustomed to very complex tricks and very complex methods of storytelling largely on account of all the movies we've all seen um, and I don't think books are really kind of keeping up people want to be made to work they want to be given two dots and a pen and join the dots themselves rather than being spoon fed um, information and it seems to me that writers of books need to be they, they need to do more than just create quirky characters and you know, list all their favourite adjectives and rely on cliché, which I think happens reasonably often. Um, they really need to get the, the reader to 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 work, really from the very first sentence. And I think that's something movies do more than books, and I certainly try to do it in this book, um, and uh, I certainly think that, the, that largely comes from watching too many movies.
1: Yes. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna ask actually if you um, watch a lot of movies.
2: Yeah, I think, fair say, I think it's fair to say that I that I that I do, and I think there'd be no end to the hyperbole you'd hear from my wife if you were to ask her if I watched too many movies. She would um, she would highly agree with that.
1: So, uh, are you also um, a long time fan of Sherlock Holmes?
2: I am. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's still there's still stories that I reach for, you know. I mean, just the other day I was thinking about there's a story, um, I think it's in the first, what I've got, I've got three three collections of short stories, and the first one's called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I think it's in there. It's called The Red-Headed League. And I was thinking about it the other day, thinking that could be the closest thing I can think of to a perfect story. You know, I mean, there, there, are, plenty of, there are plenty of other candidates, but that one is just a, a, a beautifully put together, very simple but wonderfully elegant Um uh, unfolding of 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 a classic Sherlock Holmes setup, which is that there's a paradox that he gets presented with, and it turns out that the bad guys were kind of brilliant in what they were trying to do, but they just didn't count on coming against some up against someone even more brilliant, and he sort of resolves it at the end. And it's something that I still find myself reaching for, um, and it's one of the reasons why I think I was interested in writing short stories was I like I, I, I like to sit up in bed at night and read a short story before I go to sleep. You know, the potential to get a beginning and, and a middle and an end. Um, all in one sitting is still very attractive, and, and there's not much more. I don't think there's, there are too many more satisfying reads in Sherlock Holmes' story because of that classic Sherlock Holmes structure of, of paradox, development, resolution. You know, I still find that very attractive.
1: Yeah, and you know, and it's tough to to do that successfully and with fewer words. Um, do you do you find it hard? Have you ever found it hard to get the story that's in your head into the shorter form? Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well I mean yes yeah, so and those stories are in the book. I mean some of the stories are like fifteen thousand words long. There was there are others which, which turned into twenty thousand words and they just had to they had to go. <laughs> um, and maybe the reason, one of the reasons they, they had to go is because they didn't quite cut it. But also you know, when you're writing a book that you eventually realise, okay, this is gonna be this is gonna be a collection of short stories, even if we want to call it a novel, which I dare say I do. Um it is going to be a collection of stories and you can't just chuck in a bunch of novellas or, 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 or you know, very, very long, short stories. Um, so, yeah, some of them got out of hand in terms of word length. Um, but there was... I mean, the challenge of trying to get a reasonably complicated, or at least reasonably com- complicated characters and their interactions out in a very small amount of time, I mean, there's a story in this book called um, Comedy is Dead, in which um, it's just a conversation between two people I mean, that's pretty much it, They're a little bit at the end but it's pretty much just a conversation, but that conversation in all of, I think it's only about 4,000 words long, really needs to produce a whole a whole world around the two characters one of whom, of course, is John, and the other one is the, is the, the guy he's talking to um, but the challenge that that is, is sort of the reason why I want to do it, it's the it's finding a way to just glimpse something. In this case, an interaction between two people, and infer from that glimpse, um, you know, the world in which they they live and all of their backstory and 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 the reason why there's so much tension in what they what they're dealing with in that moment. Um, that's that's it's, certainly it's a challenge, but it's also the reason why I think I want to do it. <laughs> I want to do it. It's the reason why I wrote it because that challenge is the fun part.
1: Yes. So, are you working on anything at the moment? I certainly am. Um, long, long form, or yeah, I think I think
2: I think that's I think it's time to try and write something that's more than more than a few thousand words long. Um, it's definitely going to be quite fiction, um, but that's the only kind. I think I'm pretty sure that's the only kind of stuff I'm ever going to to want to write. But more than that, I can't really go into not because um, I'm being too precious about it, but just I don't really, I honestly don't know. It's, um, it's all sort of stuff that's sort of swirling around in my head at the moment, but I'm definitely trying to. Um, I'm definitely going to be trying to write something that you you're more inclined to call a novel.
1: Yes. Okay. So I mean, at the moment you're you still got it swirling around in your head. Mm. Once you get to the writing stage, do you have some sort of routine you stick to when you're writing?
2: Um, I do. It's sort of all in flux at the moment because I'm I'm working full time, um, but I wrote most of. Um, I wrote most of them in that promise while I was studying, and I could generally kind of dictate my own hours in that sense. But, um, but it's always the first thing that I do when I wake up. I can certainly say that without ex- and 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 pretty much without exception, it's been the very first thing that I've done every single day for about six years now. Um, I also sort of try to squeeze in a second session later in the day if I can. Um, but look, the most fundamental part of my routine would have to be caffeine. <laughs> it's 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 a very, very close friend, um, and I would marry a coffee uh, if it were legal. Um, it's it's sort of, I mean, it, you know, it wakes me up. And, and writing earlier in the morning is is a, is a wonderful time to do it because you, you don't have that added guilt of having to be at work or running an errand or calling somebody on the phone. And usually our neighbourhood quiet enough for me to get something done.
1: Yeah. The coffee shops open nice and early as well.
2: Well, that's right. Look, a lot of this book was written in coffee shops. I, I, oh, there you go. I, 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 I've moved on from that. That's not that's not the routine that I adopt anymore. But certainly there was a time when um, uh, three or four places, I suppose, right throughout the northern suburbs, would be would see me walking in the door um, first thing in the morning and sitting down with my laptop. But I can't. Yeah, I don't. I don't do that anymore just because I get too distracted when I'm sitting in a cafe. Yeah, of course.
1: Uh, just one final question for you. Uh, do you have any advice for new writers?
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's I, I find it a really interesting question, actually. Um, I remember seeing um, Paul, uh, I didn't see it, I read about Paul Offser. I think he was interviewed for something or other. Um, and Paul Offser was asked exactly that same question, what's your advice for new writers? And his response was, don't do it. <laughs> Get a real job. If you commit, if you commit, if you commit to a life of, of 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 writing fiction, then you're committing to a life of frustration, poverty, and loneliness. Um, and 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 those are three, I think, reasonably appropriate words for it. you know, in, in a sense. There's it's a it's a very lonely pursuit, as opposed to other art forms. There's not a lot of money for it, in, 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 even if you are reasonably successful. And um, and of course, there's a lot of frustration and rejection that comes along with it. I'm not at the point of, su- of suggesting that, that 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 is good advice uh, to new writers. Thankfully, it's too early for me to to reach that little, level of cynicism. But I find it kind of mind blowing um, that someone like Paul Oster, who's you know he, he's extremely successful, you know, yeah. underworld is dedicated to him. He's like the definitive New York intellectual.
1: Exactly. And
2: here he is, sort of miserably saying, "Yes, <laughs> I made a mistake. If I could do it all over again, I would." not it's kind
1: of
2: it's kind of disturbing. Yeah, it's always
1: um, easy to say that from that. that well, that's true, yeah. It's like when you've
2: made it, you can't sit there and say, yeah, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. Um, but, look, I mean, the only thing that I'd say, the, the, the best lesson that I think I could impart is simply to play the long game. Um, I, I It took me five years to write this book, and that was five years of never once thinking, okay, now it's ready to send to a publisher, or I'll send the publisher this draft and see what they think. I really did work on it every day, five years, without showing it to anybody really until eventually um, my girlfriend, now my wife, um, uh, needled me into showing her some, some of the stuff that I was writing. Um, but that that resolve to get it as good as I could get it before actually presenting it to the world um, I think was the reason why I got published. If I'd sent it to text you know, two years ago or three years ago, um, I may have had a decent enough draft, but I'm not sure if a decent enough draft is really good enough these days, you know, publishers being sent as many manuscripts as they generally are. So I think the, the advice i give is not just the obvious stuff, you know, like learn to deal with rejection because that's what's, that's what's coming down the pipe. I think sort of learn to be patient and get the thing to as good a level as you can because... Um, if you don't and you get a knockback you may find yourself never completing it you may find yourself never redrafting it because you sort of you lose your confidence uh, yeah. so that's about as much as I can offer I think
1: yeah no well, it's very good advice um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today you're very very welcome good luck with the book I'm thoroughly enjoying it and I'm, I'm sure um, it will do very well wonderful thank you so much
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to Zane Lovett. I love how he talks about the fact that really this book essentially began as a series of exercises and he was just writing kind of separate short stories about this Character about his protagonist, but eventually he realized it was going to become a book. And I encourage you to do that if you are starting out. And if a book seems, if an entire book, you know, if 80,000 words or whatever seems a little bit daunting and a bit intimidating, maybe you don't think of it as a giant book. Just start writing scenes and then start writing stories and turn them into short stories and see how you go that way because you can work your way up to a book in the same way that. Zane did. In fact, he says that he felt like that they were just a series of exercises. Start with writing exercises. You don't have to start with the giant massive goal at the very beginning. You can start with something small and I encourage you to do that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed listening to Zane Lovett. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses. With online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing, students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.